Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. another Friday show here on the Second City Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dave Melton, set manager at Second City Hockey, and you can find me on Twitter at SCH underscore Dave M. You can also find the main account there at 2ND City Hockey, and check out our website, secondcityhockey.com, for all your Blackhawks-related content. We're starting to get into the top 10 of our top 25 under 25 prospect rankings. If that's your thing, uh, check that out. We'll be finishing that up next Friday. As for this Friday, uh, you know, the offseason, we're starting to run out of time in the offseason here, but we do have another Friday show coming your way today, and today's guest is Jack but you probably know him best on Twitter under the name at JFreshHockey as he's a purveyor of some of the most informed and I think some of the most aesthetically pleasing hockey analytics on the internet. Um, There's a good chance if you've been a regular visitor to our website that you've probably seen his player cards pop up in several of our articles because it's a very handy, very informative uh, pieces of hockey data that really uh, tells a story in a very good, simple, easy-to-understand way. Um, Throughout our conversation, I thought we covered a lot of topics. Uh, We talked about how we got into this field. We kind of dove into the old analytics versus eye test debate. Uh, Talked about some of the things he's learned from getting deeper and deeper into the hockey analytics world. And at the end, we did touch on a few Blackhawks topics. And if you're a big fan of or becoming a big fan of Jake McCabe, like I've slowly been over the last month or two, I think you're going to enjoy a few of the things that Jack says. Um, So stay tuned to these airwaves. I I know we've got at least one more of these coming your way next week. Um, We'll see what goes on as the uh, offseason starts to wrap up a little bit. I mean, the NFL is getting started this weekend, so we know hockey isn't too far away. Uh, but we'll have plenty of time to get into the regular season when that gets here. So right now, let's get to the interview. So we have Jack here. You know him on Twitter as at JFreshHockey. Jack, thank you for joining us here on the Second City Hockey Podcast Network. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we get too far into any of the more detailed aspects of this conversation we're going to have, I, I'm just curious about how, like, there's so many lanes and avenues to explore in hockey. How did this particular lane of the the deeper, more uh, analytical statistics, how did this become your lane? How did you kind of find this road uh, through hockey? Yeah, I think I've, as, as long as I've been aware of it, I've been interested by it. You know, I don't come from a hard stats background by any means. You know, my my math marks in high school are probably closer to the median of NHL fans than the median of analytics practitioners. Uh, but I always thought that there was something interesting in kind of getting 
you know, digging down into the results of a player and, and figuring out exactly the impact that they're having, especially because, you know, there's not enough time in the world to, to really watch all these guys play. So, uh, you know, the, the way that I kind of approached it from the get-go was, you know, I, I noticed that people always want to know more about players, you know, trade rumors and free agents and transactions and all that stuff. You know, that's such a huge part of being a hockey fan. But I think that there's a gap in knowledge about different players around the league, especially ones that you don't see on a regular basis. So, you know, I, I noticed that there's all these kind of stats and tools out there, but uh, I thought there maybe was a little bit of a, you know, interpretive gap or, or maybe kind of just a communication gap between where those stats were coming from and, and maybe your average hockey fan. So I've, I've done my best to try to translate those more complicated stats and concepts into something that's a little bit more down to earth and, and maybe understandable for, for the layman, uh, which, which I would consider myself to be more in that category than a kind of super data cruncher scientist type person. And uh, I, I think that what I found in the year and a half or so that I've been doing it since the pandemic started uh, is, is that a, a lot of people I think were interested in that uh, do ha have a lot of openness to thinking about the game in, in new ways and, you know, there have been a lot of connections that I think have been able to be made as a result of that. So it's it's been very promising and, and I think very interesting. Yeah, and I think the, one of the things that you touched on there is just the way the way the data is presented. I think that's sometimes the biggest gap between the people who make the people who compile the stats and like and then the people who are trying to digest them is like sometimes you see these these line graphs and scatter plots and heat maps and all these things that. Um, it feels like you're back in high school geometry class, and it's sometimes I don't know what the data is trying to tell me. Your player cards seem to be pretty straightforward. I, I guess is there any is there any specific uh, methodology or something behind the way you came up with the format for those player cards, or was it just like an, an idea that kicked you in the back of the head one day? Yeah, I think it really was just a matter of me having the stuff available. Uh, to me and, and kind of wanting it all in one place for my own personal use. You know, the, the whole way that kind of the Twitter account and the visualizations and stuff started was literally me just kind of making these graphics for, you know, because I was just curious to see how these players would profile when you got all these stats together. And then on a lark, I posted them on, on Twitter and uh, people took an interest in them and it all kind of blew up from there. So, you know, the level kind of, science behind it where i'm like experimenting with different things this you know and, and looking at my twitter engagements you know that's not a, a, a thing that i'm doing it really is just kind of a matter of putting the knowledge that i have of how hockey fans i think approach these kind of stats and, and what makes them more comprehensible with my own interest in stuff like graphic design and communication and writing and all that kind of stuff to uh you know and, and hockey itself obviously uh to try to make them a little bit more understandable. And, you know, I think for a lot of the people who, you know, their route into hockey analytics is kind of purely the number crunching aspect, you know, that might not be something that they're super interested in. You know, they might not be super in tune with stuff like communication or, you know, design or, you know, even marketing, if you want to take it in that direction, uh, you know, they might be more just kind of about crunching numbers. And so I think that maybe, bringing that perspective to the table may be something a little bit different. And and okay. I would hope that that's a part of what uh, has made the player cards catch on. So do you, are you involved in the formulation of like the data itself or is it, are you just more on the presentation side of things? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I, so one of the ways that I think that, that what I'm doing is, is a little bit different from a lot of other people out there is that I am approaching to this, uh, approaching it from the perspective of kind of the communication and visualization end of things. Uh, so for example, you know, I'm in a partnership right now with uh, Patrick Bacon, who goes by Top Down Hockey on Twitter, uh, who's a good friend of mine, who, you know, he is a data scientist. Like he is behind, you know, putting together the wins above replacement metrics and the NHL equivalency metrics and all that stuff. You know, he does so with feedback from me. And, you know, I, I would like to think that I played a pretty big role in kind of us working out how exactly these metrics came together, what we thought were maybe downsides of stuff that was already out there or weaknesses that I had noticed in the process of writing and communicating stuff previously. Uh, but when it comes to really the kind of down-home number crunching, you know, he's the one who's doing that. So I, I think that maybe there is kind of a benefit of the fact that I'm presenting this stuff and interpreting this stuff, but I'm not the one who's kind of in the depths building the stuff myself. Uh, there's, there's obviously weaknesses to that too. And there are times that I do have to defer to Patrick to explain specific things that are going on with the numbers. But uh, I think it, it does give me a little bit of a freedom to go from source to source, compare how things are different and try to bring together as many sources as possible uh, as opposed to just kind of being focused on pushing forward my own model or, or anything like that. But I, I imagine just with the the amount of time you spend, you know, presenting all this data that you've you've been you, you probably have been quite familiar with what the data is and what is trying to communicate about certain players and things of that nature. So I guess is there as you've uh, taken these deeper dives into the stats, is there is there something that you've like a general thing that you've learned about the the stats or so, something that maybe surprised you or something that you you guys have been able to quantify in a way that you may not have thought was possible two or three years ago? Yeah, I, I think that that the the learning experience of kind of going through this process for the past year and a half, I think has been super helpful, especially as I've branched more into kind of long form writing about these players using some of these stats. Uh, you know, I, I had a substack that I started last summer that I did a lot of player analysis on and then was lucky enough for a, uh, uh, elite prospects to to bring me on as their lead analytics writer uh, at the beginning of uh, this winter. Uh, and that kind of has given me the opportunity to not only uh, bring kind of this data into maybe a bit more of a sharper focus with more kind of video analysis and things like that to kind of bridge the gap between stats and the eye test, uh, but also find, you know, even more sources uh, that may not have been available to me before uh, to you know, flesh out exactly the picture of what these are pushing, you know? So, uh, for example, in the case of players who have very good defensive numbers in terms of present or preventing, uh, scoring chances against, uh, you know, having this data available for that, we can kind of dig into, you know, we have the baseline of, okay, this team is not giving up scoring chances when this guy is on the ice, especially kind of when you adjust for all these other factors, uh, you know, we can watch the tape and figure out what exactly is leading to that. We can find manually tracked microstats and see, okay, is he getting into puck battles? Is he sealing the puck off people's sticks? You know, what's going on here? Is he breaking the puck out? And then you can form a, full, a fuller picture there. So there are definitely patterns that you can notice by doing that kind of analysis. You know, you can see how 
forwards who are very good at locking up the puck along the boards in the offensive zone do tend to have better defensive numbers and things like that. But I think it is kind of an ever-evolving thing where the more you work with these kinds of stats, the more you can notice those kinds of patterns and, and improve your analysis. Is, is it kind of a... Like I feel, I feel like there's a there's a scientific term for this, but like it's when you buy a specific model of car that you then recognize that model of car when you see it on the road. So is it kind of a similar thing to where now that you are entrenched in this world of all these additional hockey information, do you recognize it more now when a guy has a successful zone entry or zone exit or what have you? Yeah, I think I think the more that you get kind of attuned to how these stats play out on the macro level, the more that it kind of translates to what you're watching. Uh, I think it focuses your eye on things that are maybe having a bit more of an impact on overall uh, things that are happening uh, for the player's team rather than, you know, maybe if you're just watching the game casually, you might focus in on things that aren't ultimately relevant. Uh, you might be fixating on things like body checks or getting really mad at a player for a turnover or things like that. Whereas if you're recognizing what actually matters in the long run, I think you can maybe form a more, uh, you know, maybe a more patient or, or, or more generous assessment of what's going on on the ice uh, that doesn't kind of fixate on those small things. So, you know, again, we're talking about stats that are overall over the course of, full seasons or multiple seasons. So, you know, what you watch in a specific game may not necessarily line up with that. But I do think that, you know, the more that you learn not only about these stats, but kind of how people can integrate them with what goes on on the ice allows you to focus in on things that are maybe not what would capture the eye otherwise, but are nonetheless really important. So when you're watching a hockey game, I mean, let's just say it's, you know, game five of a playoff game. It's a very important game, obviously. Um, and, and you're trying to figure out – you're watching it from the perspective of someone who's trying to understand, like, what is the the major component of why Team A is winning and Team B is losing. What are you watching? What like? And I imagine part of the answer is you're probably never watching the puck, right? Yeah, well, I think you, you inevitably do have to watch the puck, but you do want to have a sense of what exactly is going on away from it, which you might not have otherwise. Uh, and I think this is an area where maybe, you know, a, a, an understanding of – analytics specifically may not give you as many pointers as listening to the feedback of smart people who are in kind of coaching or development and things like that. Uh, like Jack Hahn, for example, who I think his newsletter uh, is a really good kind of rundown where he uses player by player examples, but what he's getting at is kind of broader things about how to evaluate hockey. Uh, so if you're, you know, for example, watching that game five situation, uh, you can focus on how, for example, defensemen are defending the blue line, uh, how they're kind of pushing the puck off to the boards, uh, how players are getting in transition plays, how multiple puck possession sequences are happening, uh, how teams are passing the puck, you know, things like that. And, and things that for a lot of hockey fans might just be something that they're uh, inherently know to look for. And especially if they've kind of played the game at a reasonably high level that, you know, that's stuff that they're probably already looking for. Uh, but for the more casual fan, I think those are the kinds of things that can go by the wayside. So, you know, it's not a guarantee by any means that somebody who is into analytics is going to be watching hockey smarter than somebody who isn't. But I think that if you do take the time to look into both analytics and kind of X's and O's, stuff like that, 
uh, I do think that it does give you maybe a broader perspective of how to interpret what you're seeing. So we like there the the analytics and eye test debate, which you you ref, you touched on it briefly, and like the the bridge or the gap between those two things. Like I feel like the the farther I get into the statistics that are being tracked now, like this this comes up. This reminds me of what's uh, happened in baseball because there's been this big statistical revolution in baseball over the last decade or however long it's been, and that like some of the things they're tracking now is you know spin rate and exit velocity and launch angle and all these things. Like they sound really fancy, but like if you think about it, spin rate, that's just how fast the ball is spinning when it's pitched. Exit velocity is how hard the ball comes off the bat. These are not incredibly complicated things that are to be in, like, they're not difficult to understand. And I think a lot of it happens in hockey as well. When, you know, a successful zone injury, the guy got the puck into the offensive zone across the blue line zone exits, the other end of that, like these, these things are not complicated. Do you find, do you find it difficult to try and get people on board with, some of the micro stats that are tracking zone entry, zone exit, and things like that, even though they are simple concepts, they just sound a lot more complicated than they are. Yeah, I think once you get into those kinds of micro stats, people tend to be more on board uh, because you are talking, like you said, kind of more directly about things that are happening, like zone entry, zone exits. So I think that that's inherently easier for somebody to understand who's not into analytics compared to if you're talking about, you know, on ice expected goals or wins above replacement or shot attempts and things like that, you know, those are kind of more macro level things. And I think a lot of hockey fans aren't watching hockey from a macro level. You know, they're focusing on the micro level. They're focusing on, you know, who turned the puck over, who lost their coverage, who, uh, you know, allowed a guy to get his stick on the ice in front of the net, you know, that kind of thing. And, and those are, you know, obviously important things, but they're not things that necessarily tell the whole story. Uh, and, you know, in, in terms of the eye test versus analytics debate, you know, I, I think at this point, it's not really much of a debate. You you would like to have both. Uh, you, you know, you want to be able to illustrate the story of what the analytics are telling you with examples from the eye test. And that's kind of a, a focal point of, of my long form writing, which, you know, it's obviously I think people can look at the player cards and say, OK, well, you know, this is just somebody looking at a spreadsheet to tell them who's good at hockey. Uh, but, you know, I, I have a pretty extensive body of, of hockey writing uh, that specifically goes in the game tape in order to connect those dots. And, and almost always those dots can be pretty easily connected between what the analytics say and, and what your eye test uh, will indicate if you're watching carefully and you're looking for the right things. I, I think the the issue and I think that the general kind of miscommunication that happens between what you might call the eye test people and the analytics people is that in a lot of cases, you know, we're not talking about the eye test of NHL scouts or, you know, people who necessarily played minor or junior hockey all the time. Uh, a lot of the time you're talking either about the eye tests of people who, you know, like a lot of people in the analytics realm don't have that technical X's and O's knowledge. Uh, or I think in a lot of cases, especially when you're talking about players who aren't on the team in question, you know, if you are a Penguins fan, you know, there are a lot of Penguins fans who will say that they have a lot of eye test opinions about players who play for the An uh, Anaheim Ducks or Arizona Coyotes. And, you know, in reality, a lot of that opinion isn't based on kind of sober, isolating scouting reports of those guys. It's about kind of a combination of maybe a half-remembered game from a year and a half ago and looking at their point totals. And, you know, that's not the eye test. 
So if if that person did have access to, you know, a scouting report that did actually go in depth about a player's strengths and weaknesses, then I think that there could be a very good conversation to be had, you know, resolving it, you know, any tension there might be between the analytics and the eye test, but that would require the eye test to actually be kind of an eye test and not hearsay and hockey card stats, which, which I don't think it always is. I don't know how you could watch that much hockey, like to, to have an eye test on everybody across the entire league. Like there's, there's 32 teams now. Each team's got 25 players. And, and like, I, I just, I don't know how, you, how it's physically possible to watch that much hockey. I, I feel yeah. like I watch a good amount, but it's just, I don't know how it's possible to have eye tests on everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the thing is that, you know, I mean, you know, let's be honest, pe- people don't. Right. Uh, exactly. you know, before, before I was, you know, interested in analytics, I definitely had a lot of opinions on a lot of players that were based mostly on a combination of what I could find on hockey DB and what people were saying on Reddit or HF sports about them uh, <laughs> or right. on TSN or Sportsnet or, or what have you. Yeah. And, you know, again, if you are a casual hockey fan who doesn't feel the need to turn their hobby into math homework or super extensive scouting or anything, you know, I don't think there's really anything wrong with that at all. Like, I, I don't think everybody needs to be into analytics. It doesn't like make me mad when somebody says they don't have any interest in it. Uh, you know, the only, I think, tension that does occasionally bug me is when the kind of uh, eye test versus analytics thing comes up from somebody where it's totally evident that the eye test in question here is not an actual eye test. It's just different types of maybe more simple stats uh, combined with what they heard about a certain player, you know, a couple months ago on on. HF boards or Twitter or something like that. Right. Yeah. It, it seems like the, the, the issue always comes up when one is dismissive, uh, one is dismissive of the other because it yeah. seems like, like they kind of paint like the, like the analytics. I, I think there's more, they tend to be more factual based because the, there's a lot of subjectivity that can be involved with the eye test, but it seems like whenever one is dismissive of the other, then it's not good for anybody. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you have a player like, you know, uh, just to, to pick a, a totally random one that's not relevant at all to this conversation, uh, Seth Jones. Uh, <laughs> I just, I should have known. <laughs> yeah, you know, and you have these analytics that say, you know, he is not that good. You have maybe these other different stats that say, oh, well, he's good at these things. And then you have an eye test that says, okay, well, he's one of the best defensemen in the league. You know, there's an opportunity there for... I think a a good deal of conversation and and debate and maybe, you know, sharpening of of opinions here that can get pretty nuanced and interesting. Uh, When you get to the point where, you know, somebody's saying, Oh no, this, this guy stinks because of his analytics. And then somebody else says, okay, well this guy rules because I watched him play 150 minutes in a playoff game against the lightning. You know, that's where I think you're going to get a little bit off the rails. So uh, yeah, I I mean, a a great and well-reasoned and, you know, I think uh, it's a good sample sized eye test, I think, is worth quite a bit. And I put a lot of stock in it and I, and I put a lot of value in it. Uh, what I put a lot less stock in is the kind of quote unquote eye test that I was getting to. So, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, the the area where I, I, I guess if if I had a level of skepticism regarding deeper stats, it's it's 
it's it comes whenever people come up with the the wins above replacement models. And this is an area I'm continually intrigued by. And I could try and summarize it, but I guess if 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 I were to ask you to generally generally summarize what the wins above replacement models, what they're trying to communicate, how would you explain that? Sure. So the the point of the wins above replacement models is to narrow or to to I guess simplify the game of hockey down to its core components and then take the estimated impact that a player has in those areas of the game, translate that into a number of goals that they uh, provide or cost their team either way, and then turn those number of goals into an estimated number of wins. And so the, the idea of that is that at the end of that, you have kind of a number of wins that a player has individually contributed to his team compared to, if you replaced him with like a league minimum player uh, and you know, all, like I said before, a, a big part of that phrase is estimated. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think you're going to find anybody who makes these models or who seriously engages with them, uh, who's going to say that if you want to find the best players in the league, you sort the wins above replacement stat. Uh, and, and if they are saying that, then they're, they're doing that. I think from the same general perspective that the, quote unquote, I test person who sorts the league by points and then figures out who the Norris winner is. You know, I think that there's, there's a, a, a tempting simplicity to it, but I don't think that it's one that actually is particularly helpful. I, I think what is helpful and what I think that I do in my player cards, which are built on a wins above replacement model is break that wins above replacement model down into those components, you know, impact on scoring chances offensively, impact on preventing them defensively, impact on drawing and taking penalties, uh, impact on scoring goals above expected based on the quality of their shots, you know, stuff like that. And then presenting how the players performed in each of those categories. And that's when I think you can get to an area where instead of saying, you know, oh, well, player A is better than player B because this guy has, you know, 0.7 war instead of 0.2 war, you know, instead of that, you can be like, okay, player A is more of a defensive player he prevents his scoring chances against, but he's not much of a contributor offensively. Whereas player B is an all offense guy who puts the puck in the net, but gives a lot back on defense. You know, that I think can be a good starting point for a broader and more nuanced analysis. Whereas just saying this guy's war is better than this guy's. So he's automatically better, I think isn't. And I think that that's a valid issue that a lot of people have with the way that people tend to, talk about wins above replacement is that they do kind of see it as that easy out where you're taking a complicated game like hockey and narrowing it down to a number and saying this guy's better than this guy uh where i think that while ward does have value the value does come as being kind of more of that broad estimate that you can use to do better analysis Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, 
Just go to cars.com. It's magical. And I think you kind of answered the follow-up question I was going to have for you because it seems like whenever you get down to uh, evaluating players on an individual basis, it, it seems f- from from my perspective, it just seems so difficult because hockey's such a fluid game, and um, you know, you're especially like with D partners, like one, you know, your D partner's mistake results in a goal. And I don't know how you blame the other guy for that when he had he was doing his job, but his teammate messed up, and and the four that commits a turnover in the neutral zone leads a three on two the other way and a goal, and you know, his other two forward line mates were wide open. And didn't have anything to do with that turnover. Um, you know, we call that the Alex Nylander effect. So uh, I just, I don't know how, I guess, is there a way that you've been able to explain how you account for like the fluidity of hockey and the way things are so, how how so rarely it's just like one instance results in the goal. It's usually a result of two or three other mistakes that compound into a goal. Is there any way you've come around to kind of explaining or, or accounting for that within the statistics that you guys generate? Yeah. So I think that that's kind of a, a main focus of the kinds of stats that, that Patrick builds. And that if you look at people like Micah McCurdy or, or Valding Wild, you know, the, the metrics that they're making, those, those isolated stats, you know, the way that they kind of get around that is that, you know, they're talking about, uh, or they're looking at kind of a player's impact and one of the major ways that they kind of figure out how to get around that, you know, the, the thing that you're talking about where, you know, the center makes a mistake and then, you know, the, the defenseman gets blamed for it. You know, that's going to be a thing that happens if you look at raw stats, you know, if you're looking at just a player's on ice goals, then everyone is going to get dinged equally for that. You know, the hope is with that, uh, the impact models, like the isolated models is that by looking at kind of how those on ice numbers change and interact when people are playing with different players you know so uh if you have you know that defenseman you know yes that center made the mistake but what happens when the defenseman is playing with a different center you know and maybe the results that happen there will you know the model kind of learns okay well it was it was the presence of that first center that's that is what caused that scoring chance uh and you know that there's obviously a lot of kind of tenuousness to that and that's why you want as much sample size as possible so you can have kind of all of those different interlocking pieces you can be a little bit more confident about what exactly is causing what outcome there uh but you know like i said before you know we're, we're talking about kind of estimates of impact N- none of this is kind of totally exact or totally precise uh and so i think that there are, is a lot of room for interpretation and i think that that's one of the things that I think is, is interesting about it and, and one of the reasons that I'm, I'm interested in hockey analytics as an idea and, and something to write about is because, you know, it's not a sport where everything is totally settled. Like it's not a sport mm-hmm. where you can be like, okay, this guy is obviously objectively better than this guy. And there's no room for argument there because his stat in this category is better than this one. Uh, and, and we know that when they show up at, you know, in, in October for the start of next season, it's going to be exactly the same way, even if they switch teams. Uh, you know, in hockey, people go to different systems. They play with different line mates who may have different stylistic elements that kind of bring out the best in them. Uh, maybe they have a different coach who 
motivates them. You know, they're, they're human beings. Maybe they had a good summer. Maybe they trained really hard, stuff like that. Uh, and, and, you know, while there is generally, I think a good deal of consistency and, and enough consistency that I think that we can be confident that we're on the right track here. Uh, it still does leave enough up to enough up to interpretation where, you know, if you have a guy like Seth Jones, you know, you can see how his numbers really went south this year in Columbus. You can say, okay, he's going to Chicago this year. You know, maybe last year he wasn't feeling too good in the pandemic year. Maybe he, he didn't like being locked down. Maybe the system in Columbus, they tightened it up a little bit too much or they loosened it up a little bit too much. They didn't let him attack the blue line like he might want to, et cetera, et cetera. And you can kind of figure out ways in which, okay, like maybe he'll be a better fit in Chicago than in Columbus. Now, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree that that's the case, but you could make the argument and there's every chance that it could end up happening. You know, I think that that is what makes hockey analytics interesting and something that is good to talk about and, and something that's, that's worth looking into. But I do understand why people who do want either a clear answer uh, of who's better than who and who's more talented than who and things like that uh, might either be you know, turned away from analytics because that precision doesn't exist uh, or might act as though the analytics are telling them something clearer than they actually are because they do want that kind of certainty that unfortunately they just can't provide because of the way the hockey is. I think like the thing I most appreciate about everything you just said there is just that I, it seems like you under you firmly believe that like the word you like using the words like estimations and approximations that the data is not objective fact. Like the, all the, all the information you contain, like it's, it's, it's pretty It's pretty good. Like it's, it's hard. A lot of it's hard to argue against, but I think the, I guess, humility to understand that maybe this is off just by a little bit. And like, I think we try to do that just if I write an opinion piece, like even writing about the Seth Jones trade, if you will, that I still don't like it, but maybe Seth Jones rediscovers everything in Chicago and he's good again. And then it turns out to be worthwhile trade. I think that, that whole, uh, just the approach of maybe I'm not the ultimate answer here. I think that is missing in so many areas, but in, in sports commentary as well. So that's, it's refreshing to hear that perspective. I, I mean, in hockey, especially, I think it's something that you have to do. Otherwise you're going to end up looking like an idiot, probably more than half the time, you know, the stuff that I kind of, when I do get some level of certainty, uh, a lot of the time it is from when results have been consistent across multiple seasons, especially mm-hmm. across multiple teams. Uh, so, you know, in the case of, of Seth Jones, uh, you know, he's somebody that I was writing about when he was with Columbus, where I was arguing that he wasn't quite as good as people thought he was. But, you know, I was arguing that he was kind of more of a solid middle pairing guy uh, rather than, mm-hmm. you know, that he's a total bum. Uh, and then his numbers this year in Columbus nosedived. You know, they were among the worst in the league. He was, you know, his team was way worse when he was on the ice you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think a lot of people see the player card. They, you know, they see the the stats and the wins of replacement and everything like that. And and their conclusion is, okay, well, this guy has fallen off a cliff. He's terrible. The Blackhawks have just brought in one of the worst players in the league. Whereas, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm kind of more concerned about the fact that for three years before that, he was just pretty okay rather than, putting that much stock into 56 games uh, of results that I think were pretty far out in line, uh, out of line with what we had seen from him previously. So, 
you know, the, the longer you see things be kind of steady and consistent, or at least in a pretty logical trend, I think the more confident that you can get. But especially when you're only talking about, you know, one year of results, you know, especially if it's a shortened season, I do think that you have to be careful with that. And, and I mean, you have to be careful about that no matter what, you know, if you're, even if you do have a perfect eye test and you're watching 56 games, you know, your assessment still could be completely wrong. You know, you'd be subject to the exact same uncertainty as the analytics are. Uh, It's just really a matter of understanding that the limit isn't necessarily with the analytics themselves. It's with the sport itself. It's with the limitations and the biases of the eye test itself. Uh, And, and, that's one of the things that makes hockey entertaining and why we look into it. I think if we knew what was going to happen, we probably wouldn't sit through 82 games to watch it happen. Before we get into, I do want to ask you some Blackhawk stuff and we're not going to talk about Seth Jones anymore because we, we talked about Seth Jones plenty when the trade happened and for three weeks after, and I'm like, I, we're going to, I'll worry about Seth Jones when we get to October, but just curious for you, like your, your Twitter bio list, lists that you're in Toronto. So does that mean you were a Maple Leafs fan or did you relocate? I guess, where does your hockey, hockey fandom lie initially? No, I'm from the East coast of Nova Scotia. So okay. I, uh, I came here for university eight years ago, probably, probably within a week of, uh, of eight years ago now. Uh, and I am, I'm not a Maple Leafs fan. I am, I will admit that I'm a little more Leafs empathetic than I was, uh, at that time, just kind of having enough friends who are Leafs fans and watching the secondhand pain does make it a little hard. Not I was to about be. To, is it like a pity thing now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I, I think when I watched that, uh, that playoff series against the Capitals in 2017, the one where they weren't really given a chance. I think they were the eighth seed and, uh, and they won that game in overtime and I was in a big crowded sports bar. And it was the first time that I had been kind of in a bar in NHL city watching a playoff overtime win. And I just thought, okay, I could, I could get on board with, with more of this, which necessitates hoping that the Leafs go a little further. So okay. obviously that hasn't worked out, but no, I'm a, uh, I'm a Penguins fan because, uh, of uh, of Sidney Crosby, who happened to be entering the league when I was about ten years old, which is, I think, the perfect time to hop on board a bandwagon. As uh, I'm sure, quite a few twenty uh, one year old Blackhawks fans listening to this will probably agree with. Yeah, there the Blackhawks bandwagon did fill up significantly towards the end of the two thousands for sure. Um, so when as you've gotten deeper into the uh, into the the statistical side of things, and now you're, you're writing about it for uh, EP Rinkside. Like, does it? Are you? Do you still claim hockey fandom, or is it? Is it has the emotional aspect of being a hockey fan kind of dissipated a little bit with with either the work or just getting older? I guess has that changed at all for you? Yeah, that's that's a good question because, like, I mean, when I'm watching Penguins playoff games, you know, I'm still just as into it. You know, I would still consider myself a Penguins fan. You know, I'm wearing a penguins jack johnson jersey and my uh my twitter picture okay uh you know i like i, I would still consider myself a penguins fan but it when you are kind of especially not only when you're writing about hockey but when you're kind of covering the entire league that does maybe blunt things a little bit uh like you know i used to be totally you know dead set like you know oh yeah like here are all the guys that the penguins brought in free agency and stuff and then meanwhile you know i just was looking at my stuff yesterday and i completely had forgotten that they had signed uh, Danton Heinen and I had to kind of like look up and be and figure out that I had somehow missed that they had done that, which definitely wouldn't have been the case. So I, I'm, I would say I'm probably a little less personally invested in the penguins 
especially now that I kind of, you know, I didn't really use to watch non-Penguins games very often, uh, unless I was like at a bar or at a friend's house. Whereas now I kind of have an obligation to watch just as many games around the league as I do watch Penns games. So it, it does definitely kind of change the character of your fandom a bit. Mm. But uh, no, I'm not quite at the point yet where I can disavow it. Maybe, uh, maybe in a perfect parallel to the uh, to me hopping on the bandwagon when I was ten, I'll, I'll conveniently hop off as soon as uh, everything goes south. We'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, well, yeah. So if that's the case, I think all the Blackhawks fans just exited the bandwagon. Well, probably about two years ago, actually. But I'm, that's I'm always curious to talk to people who like. There's the the rule of sports journalism that once you cover a team professionally at at that level, that you know your your fandom has to take a back seat and you just have to be an objective media person. But I also it also seems like that slowly that was such an old timey narrative that it's kind of fading away that like there are still very prominent people in sports media who still wear like still publicly declare their fandom. Like Greg Wyshynski writes for the for ESPN and I assume he's still a devil's fan. Cause he, he always was when he write, wrote for Yahoo. So I'm, I'm always intrigued to see how that affects people. Cause I feel like that, that rule is not such a hard and fast rule as it used to be. Yeah, no, I, I, I would totally agree with that. Um, but, you know, I, especially, you know, from my perspective, it's not like I'm specifically covering, like I'm not covering the flyers or anything right. like that. I, I'm kind of casting a broad enough brush that it really isn't going to hurt my objectivity if I, uh, you know, watch the Penguins games, hoping that they're, that they're going to win. And, and honestly, I think as is the case with a lot of writers, you know, I think uh, Dom Lushizen is kind of the easiest analog. Right, where right. It's kind of a very similar thing that I do in terms of, analytics guy who generally covers the league and uh you know he's a obviously a, a huge Leafs fan and i think that that actually kind of makes his work better than it would if he wasn't because you know you add that kind of investment and and when things go south like they have so often in Leafs land uh, i think it just adds that extra element to to the writing yeah, I don't know. I I enjoy it still when you find out that people in sports media still have their fandom. Like I feel like it, it like there's it I I don't want to say humanize because that's it seems like such the wrong word, but that's the best one I can come up with that they just like shows like we're still they're still fans in a bar watching the game. This maybe they have to, you know, maybe after the game's over, they, they don't drink during it and they have to go do interviews afterwards, but they're still, you know, there's still that eight-year-old kid in them screaming at the TV when they're even when they're watching it from a press box. Yeah. And I mean, you know, from a social media perspective, I, I feel like, you know, you're a lot more relatable on Twitter if you are getting just as wrapped up in your how your team is doing compared to if you're just kind of a, you know, a specter looming over the entire league right. completely objectively without any investment. In it. You know, I, I much prefer being the fan of a team rather than if I was not a fan of a team. I feel like that would take a lot of the fun out of hockey. So hopefully <laughs> it, it, it keeps up and then probably as soon as uh, the puck drops for the first Penguins game, I'll be right back in the swing of it. Until Crosby retires, right? Then, then forget about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. then, I'll, then, then I'll go for the, I'll go for the other Nova Scotia kid and conveniently become a avalanche fan. Oh, there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Good to, well, I say you should, I would have been a good move to jump on them three, uh, three or four years ago too. Um, yeah, so maybe, yeah, Jack. So th- thank you again, again, for your time. Uh, before we get you out here, I do want to talk a little bit Blackhawks focus stuff. Again, we, the Seth Jones stuff, we we've already, we've, we've crossed that bridge plenty. Um, but is there, is there any other information that you've been able to glean from all the Blackhawks data you've compiled 
uh, over the summer. Something you can give us that will be an optimistic thing because a lot of the data around the Blackhawks is not good. Um, and we've talked about it a ton on these airwaves and written about it ad nauseum. But is there anything good you can share with us uh, that'll give us a little bit of optimism that things could be a lot better next season for the Hawks? Sure. I, I mean, I I think that there's, you know, I think the Blackhawks are, are indisputably a lot better now than they were oh, last absolutely. year. You know, you know, even if maybe they didn't allocate things as the way that I might have, even if I am not the biggest Seth Jones fan, et cetera, et cetera. You know, at the end of the day, they still moved Duncan Keith, which I think was a thing that they absolutely had to do. And I think they did a, an excellent job of it, not having to retain or, or you know, do any nonsense there. Uh, and, and I think just not having Duncan Keith as the number one defenseman is going to have a huge impact on the blue line uh, in a really good way. You know, I don't think that that was a role that he was really able to, you know, capably fill. I think right. the this is one of those cases where you do have the results piling up over three or four seasons where it is kind of difficult to fully turn your head. Uh, and, and, you know, having those minutes kind of be given instead to players like, you know, Connor Murphy and Calvin DeHaan and, you know, uh, Jake McCabe, who, who I, I can get into in a second. Uh, I think that that's only good news for, for a team that has really, really struggled to, I think control the pace of play defensively for the past couple of years. Uh, and actually I not to, not to name drop them again, but I would recommend that the Blackhawks fans check out uh, Jack Hans new book uh, ebook that he just released hockey tactics 2021, which is a whole chapter on what he perceives to be kind of the system, systemic problems with the Blackhawks game that, that leads to their defensive deficiencies. Uh, you know, I think that from a personal perspective, I think they're, they're definitely a lot better defensively than they were last year. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury is obviously a, a huge upgrade uh, in net. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's going to be a Vezina candidate again, but at the very least, I think he, he'll be quite a bit better than than what they were running last year. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Jonathan Taves being back, I don't think you can really, you know, un- understate the, the gap between having Jonathan Taves in the lineup and, and not having him. You know, even if maybe his two-way game obviously isn't what it once was, I think he's still a really great and effective offensive player and uh and adding him kind of out of nowhere to that roster is, is going to be big so i don't know if i would necessarily pencil them in as a playoff team next year uh but you know i've long been quite a bit higher on the black Foxy young guys and their young core and maybe their ability to you know not tank for the next couple of years than i think a lot of people have been and i think that maybe their job of supplementing that group has been a little up and down uh, but at the very least, I think they'll be a better team than they were. I, I think I just want to hear more about Jake McCabe because after, after the Hawks signed him, like I, I, there was, it was kind of under the radar with the Seth Jones trade and the uh, Mark Andre Fleury trade. And the more I read about him, uh, like your player card of him is quite nice to look at. And just all the other data on him was like, this, this guy might be really, really good. And kind of exactly what the Hawks have, haven't really had and have kind of needed uh, in, in several years. So I guess just, just tell me more good things about Jake McCabe. Cause that's going to sound really good. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's really not a lot bad that you can say about Jake McCabe, especially, I mean, last season, he obviously had limited time playing because uh, of his injury, um, you know, and, and that in the time that he was on the Sabres, he was uh, last season, he was, he was excellent. Uh, and, and I think that this is one of those situations 
you know, like I alluded to it, um, where, you know, you care more about kind of the, the stats over a couple of years rather than you do necessarily about them from a shortened season. And I think that, that Jake McCain's player card is kind of maybe the opposite of Seth Jones in that respect, where, you know, his incredible performance in about 15 or 20 games is, is maybe doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Uh, but at the very least, you know, it, he's not an elite defenseman, I, I, I don't think. Uh, I think that's pretty fair to say. Uh, but at least what he has shown in Buffalo for the past couple of years is that in a really, really tough situation, uh, he has been a very strong defensive presence. Uh, there, I think he's he's had a real moderating effect. Uh, he is good in puck battles. He's good at taking the puck off people. He's good at keeping opponents to the outside of the ice relative to his teammates. Uh, and and overall, I think that he is the type of stabilizing presence that the Blackhawks really needed. So, you know, I would see him being added to the blue line as maybe being one of the most important additions that they could have made. Uh, I, I don't know how they're planning on deploying him whether he is going to be with Steph Jones right away whether he's going to be with Connor Murphy uh, I, I don't know if, if you have some insight into that but I think no matter where, where they'll put him I, I figure that he should at least be able to provide kind of steady number three number four results for them yeah the, the thought was to put him and Murphy together and just have a really good shutdown pairing yeah. combo yeah, I, I don't have any inside knowledge on that that was just when as we were talking about the people in the summer like that seemed you know get that as your shutdown pairing and let the other two line uh, other two deep pairings be a little more offensively oriented but uh we'll see I don't know we'll find out in a few weeks here because it's not that far away yeah I think you can draw a lot of parallels between him and Murphy in terms of both of them putting up very very steady defensive results in on teams that really really don't have good defensive results so if you can put them together and deploy them against top competition then i feel like that could give the blackhawks a pretty significant leg up over what they were running last year all right well jack i I think those are all the questions i had for you thanks again so much for your time um i I know we can find you on twitter at jfreshhockey is there anything else or anything else to plug anywhere else that people can find your work yep so i'm going to be uh Writing at uh, Elite Prospects, EP Ringside again this uh, this season. Uh, and I start getting my first couple pieces up for the new year uh, in just a couple days. Uh, they can also find if they're familiar with my player cards or if they see them on, on Twitter and are interested in them. Uh, there's a whole bunch of kind of hockey data visualizations and stuff like that that are available on my Patreon. Uh, it's a $5 a month subscription. Uh, you get player cards, roster builders, prospect stuff uh there really is a lot and, and i've worked hard this summer on kind of making sure that it you get as much pain for your buck as possible so if hockey stats interest you at all then hopefully you'd find something interesting in that excellent and, and as, as someone who has the patreon himself like it's it's great stuff i and you'll if you visit our website you've probably seen the j fresh hockey player cards several times so um jack thank you so much for your time and uh look forward to reading and uh, digesting much more of your stuff uh, throughout the course of the season sounds good thanks for having me mm-hmm.